Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 20 of Internal Budget. As always, I'm Brandon Mackey. In light of current events, it wouldn't be appropriate to go on with the podcast as normal without addressing the elephant in the room. With that in mind, I've prepared some remarks regarding my thoughts on the current situation at hand, as well as the overall future of the podcast for the time being. Let me start off by saying this. We live in a democracy. One of the truly great things about that fact is that it means every single person who lives under our flag has the right to their own opinion. It means that no matter who you are or where you're from, you are entitled to your own points of view, forged by your own lived experiences, and no one can take that away from you, no matter what. So if you disagree with the events that are taking place right now, that's your right. It is 100% within your rights to counter cries of Black Lives Matter with shouts of All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter or yelling about looters and how violence is never the answer. But I would implore you for a moment to stop. Take a break from yelling, lower your defenses, and open your ears to the experiences of the black community for right now because what we're currently seeing transpire didn't happen overnight. They have lived with the effects of systemic racism for hundreds of years, and after another murder of an unarmed black man at the hands of a police officer, they have every right to be angry. And they are trying to tell you that fact, in no uncertain terms. This is not a lived experience that I share. I come from privilege and I've let that fact trick me into stubbornly writing these experiences off in the past. I'm a guy who didn't believe Colin Kaepernick was in the right when he began his protest in 2014. But with the benefit of time, growth, and hindsight, I've come to understand that I have one job for right now, and that is to listen. Here in Toronto, I coach a high school football team that is over 90% black. I have seen these kids suffer from discrimination by teachers, referees, and countless ignorant adults for no other reason than the color of their skin. I've seen them cheated out of games and opportunities because of what they look like and where they come from. When I watched the video of George Floyd's heinous, cold-blooded murder, I couldn't help but feel nauseous thinking about one of my kids coming across a cop like that. Not a cop who wanted to protect them or serve them, and those ones are out there, but one who would casually squeeze the life out of them as if they were nothing. One that would crush them under the weight of their boot as if they were nothing more than an insect. It is because of this fact that I now know, despite my misguided thoughts in the past, that we need to do better. It is no longer enough to simply shrug and say, well, of course racism is wrong. It is no longer enough to sit quietly and passively while people are being forced to fight for their right to exist and to live freely in some of the so-called greatest countries on earth. In the words of Angela Davis, quote, In a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist, end quote. If you don't believe that fact, if you don't believe that those of us with privilege are under an obligation to listen empathetically to the struggles and experiences of the black community, consider for a moment that the President of the United States openly threatened to use military force against his own protesting citizens and label them as terrorists. And even if you still don't care, my question is simple. Who is going to be left to stand beside you when it's your rights that come under siege? Because I promise you, if we let it to hap happen to anyone, it will happen to everyone. This long-winded preamble to the show is me reaffirming my commitment to use my platform at both Silver7Cents.com and Internal Budget, no matter how small, to amplify black voices, stand up for the rights of my fellow citizens, and be a driving force for positive change. I can't promise perfection. 
but I promise to listen, learn, and do my very best. If this offends you or you object to this sentiment, that is again within your rights. But if that's the case, maybe Internal Budget isn't the podcast for you. Please consider donating to causes in support of the black community. There have been plenty of great resources posted online, and you can find them on my Twitter page, at Brandon Mackey 6. I hope you will join me in striving to be on the right side of history and do your best to stand for what is right. Thank you, and enjoy the show with hockey writer, scout, and analytics expert, Jeff Fayette. Okay, Jeff, welcome to Internal Budget. Thanks for joining the show, man. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm uh, really excited to be on. Yeah, we're glad to have you. Uh, before we get into the hockey things here, uh, I think we would be remiss if we didn't at least you know, touch on the protests going on across the world right now. Uh, I think it would be doing a disservice to the listeners, especially those who fall into marginalized groups, if we didn't talk about it. So, But I think I speak for both of us when I say, um, you know, both of us coming from a, a place of privilege, we're going to do our best to listen and to be allies and try to do our part to help find this positive change in our society yeah 100 percent um what's happening uh, is something that's been happening for a long time and uh seeing the way that the black community gets treated not just in, in the united states but throughout north america and throughout the world uh it's it's incredibly uh heartbreaking and like i, I we were just talking before we we started about uh being in toronto i grew up in uh in a lot of like predominantly minority communities. I, I was raised in uh, Little Jamaica. I spent a lot of time in Lawrence Heights. Um, and you see that kind of prejudice happen and you see um, the environments that, uh, that, that create these positions for the, for the communities and you understand why uh, there's a degree of distrust um, because it's justified. And as you watch the footage of these protests and you see uh, the officers escalating them, uh, even e- even while they are being spoken to, being told uh, that what they're doing to these people is wrong, uh, that they still don't care and they're still doing it. It's no it's no surprise that there is uh, so much anger. There needs to be significant reform and we need to listen to anybody um who is on the front lines of this, who has experience uh, with this. And that's honestly pretty much every person of color in, in uh, around the world has had to deal with something uh, along these lines uh, before. Um, and it goes beyond just that. It's, the, it's a systemic issue um, both for their community and it's a systemic issue within law enforcement's abuses of power. I think it's important to remember uh, the core bit here uh, about the uh, connection to it. I know a lot of um, a lot of companies, teams, et cetera, are avoiding the the police part, and you can kind of understand uh, why they would. But that's uh, a thing we need to be mindful. Of, but mostly, we need to listen to 
to those who have the experiences uh, because we like we don't truly know how that feels. Um, we listen. We, we we can only listen and and learn from it. So keep an eye on everything that's going on over these next couple of days. Listen to the voices. Listen to the anger. Listen to the pain. And my heart goes out to everybody fighting the good fight. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. But we're here to talk some hockey, so let's jump right into that. Uh, so you're you're obviously a member of what one may call uh, Leafs Twitter, or the Leafs side of things. So for our listeners that you know actually have good taste in hockey teams, why don't you tell them a little bit about yourself? Uh, <laughs> that's uh, that, that, that's more than fair. Um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm just uh, a guy from Toronto who uh, decided that they uh, that they really liked hockey growing up. Uh, my dad was a huge Leaf fan and um, kind of got me into it. A lot of my family plays and it works in the around the game, and it's just it's always captivated me as a kid. And uh, yeah, obviously the home team is going to be the team that you pay the most attention to. Though I'm all I also have this like weird like East West kind of relationship where I also grew up with Pavel Bury as my favorite player and a whole bunch of other players on the Canucks, so they're kind of like my second team too. Um, but I also even consider myself a hockey fan first, who happens to have favorite teams. At the end of the day, um, I just love uh, I love the sport, um, and that's kind of carried on into into almost a career of sorts. When I was uh, in my like preteens, I started writing and, and, uh, and creating websites and kind of just throwing whatever content I could just because this was what I was most interested in. Um, at the time, I didn't really realize I was carving a niche for myself. But uh, but yeah, now it's uh, now it's become a thing that I've been involved in for half my life now. And uh, I couldn't be happier to be doing something I love. You tend to... Uh exist very much within the analytics sphere of things both in uh, your job with the buzzers and your coverage of the sport itself so talk to me a little bit about that what attracted you to the analytics initially and how has it kind of shifted your perspective on the game both as a writer and as someone whose job it is to work for a team I think for me it's just a matter of understanding um, all elements of information uh, I consider myself a hockey person first and a numbers person second. I wasn't a great math student. Uh, I still have to kind of nod politely when a lot of the, the modelers talk and start going into the nitty gritties of, of, of their formulas. Um, so for for me, uh, I, I got into it, I'd say the 2012 uh, 13 half season uh, because the Leafs were unsustainably good. They were, but by that I mean they were really bad in winning games, and it was very uh, kind of confusing to me. Um, at the same time, I just kind of switched over my roles because I had spent pre the previous years running my own websites, and I, at that point I had just switched over to writing for the Nation Network for the Leafs Nation. And uh, at the time, Cam Sharon was the uh, managing editor of the site. And for those who are unfamiliar with Cam, he's one of the uh, original analytics community uh, voices. Um, and he now, and for the last, I want to say six years has worked for the Maple Leafs, uh, research and development department. Uh, but at the time he was considered kind of like, 
forefront a little bit more on the innovative side of things in terms of applying that data. So for me, as someone who was basically the only other person writing regular content on the site, I wanted to know what he was talking about. And as he started explaining stuff to me, it seemed very interesting because uh, it kind of meshes a lot with how I've seen hockey uh, philosophically throughout my life, that kind of more controlling the puck, high skill, high pace, um, more offensively driven sort of thing. And the fact that it was evidence-based and it was something where you're not just relying on, oh, well, I see that, so I think it's true. Uh, you start noticing that when you pay attention to um, to to the to the results and the context of why those results exist, um, you you tend to do uh, better work. So it's just something that's kind of evolved over time, much like the community itself has evolved over time and the research has evolved over time. And I think to um, to not consider it as a vital resource uh, for any hockey team or sports team to get an edge um, or to any fan to try to understand uh, how how things work and why things happen on the ice. Um, I, it, it's it's an incredible resource, especially when you start pairing it with a video and you start seeing why certain things um, kind of happen. You start talking to players about their own experiences and you start applying it when you're on the ice. Uh, it all kind of blends together. Um, so for me, it was just, yeah, right, right place, right time. Had a great example of a team that was giving the middle finger to analytics uh, of their results. And uh, it kind of got, got me hooked. And now uh, now we're at a point where it's getting more and more mainstream. And it's really exciting to see um, how uh, it will continue to evolve in the coming years. There's a lot of debate that goes on about the eye test versus analytics. Um, you mentioned that Leafs team kind of scoffing at it. Uh, back when you first kind of got in, got into that side of the game, you know, analytics allows you to get a better idea of the game within the game. Um, it really breaks it down. But have you identified any drawbacks to kind of looking at it that way? Um, you know, as opposed to just kind of hard stats or, or like we talked about the eye test. Um, I mean, there are times where you can kind of get misled um, by the data if you're if you're looking for something. I think that's uh, that's a critical thinking uh, thing that you have to that you have to do. At the end of the day, it's applied knowledge. The analytics, the very term analytics, is applying data. The data itself is not lying to you. The data itself is factual. It's what happened. It is the output of what's going on. Uh, the application can be bad. Uh, so I think it's important to understand um, why why certain num- how certain numbers are used, what the the benefit is uh, to them, and to try to pair them with what you see going on um, so that so that way it can inform even uh, what your eyes, uh, We'll say I, I will say that analytics have improved my eye test over the years. Uh, you start looking for different things because you know that those are the things that uh, that create results. And I think a lot of the pushback uh, by the quote unquote uh, eye, t- uh, eye test crowd is not so much uh, that they don't like the idea of um, data uh replacing them or, or or whatever they just don't agree with the conclusions and they fall back on what they see as 
well as what it is um there's a denial that maybe what they're seeing is not something that's applicable to the current game or that they that there's a chance that someone they like for example maybe just had a good night when they saw them or uh or vice versa uh it's it's really it's that it challenges uh their opinions uh i think that most people um who can think critically and accept uh, that they aren't going to bat a thousand on all their interpretations uh, can recognize the value of it, and you see that more and more uh, within the game. There's a, the the open-mindedness to it um, has improved over the past uh, several years. Uh, there's a certain point though where I think when someone goes and says, "Okay, well, analytics are in everything," uh, that person usually means that they don't think they're anything. Uh, I think we know that they are that it's not as simple as grabbing a spreadsheet, sorting one number and saying this is the rank of players, um, then, and that's it. Uh, there's still a lot more that goes into using that data, how you want to apply it, uh, whether, you, whether you're looking for a ranking or whether you're looking for something to change in someone's play style or looking to, to kind of connect it to plays they've made. Um, so it, it's just a matter of weighing it and using it to ask questions and think critically um, and apply it to to what you see. It's it's always an in tandem thing. I don't think it's as simple as as using one or another. And I don't think that any analytics person will say that it's as simple as using uh, one or the other. It's general generally when you hear that, it's people who are stuck on a certain opinion and they don't want to uh, consider all factors. Do you think it's maybe a question of people just not understanding how they work and not always being willing to put in the effort to understand it that kind of makes them resistant to it? Yeah, sometimes. And I, uh, I'd say that's probably more on, um, on the casual fan level. And, hey, that's okay. I don't think that the average person needs to necessarily um, understand how a goals above replacement model works. Um, I think when you're an executive uh, at this point, um, you're to, to, to deny the value and the application now, we're 12 years into having um, the, uh, the play-by-play data revolution in the, uh, in the NHL. And um, to deny it at this point means that you're consciously choosing to to work around it. Um, that's that's a statement that's um, that's going back to what I was saying before. It's people who don't want to look at things that tell them that they might be wrong. Uh, but at the fan level, yeah, I I think that there is still room uh, to to kind of bridge the gap and kind of explain um to the average person what the what this all means why it's uh why it's useful and i think those are the most valuable people in our uh in our community are the ones who can break it down into simple terms it's not necessarily about uh showing me the most complicated data point that gets me from 95 percent accurate to 97 percent accurate um it's it's often about getting some getting people away from things that we know are misleading uh, to something that at least gets them somewhat on the on the right page. Like an example uh, from the other day is there was a there was somebody in the community. I'm not going to mention their name just because I don't think it's really important to the conversation. But they were talking about how uh, 
how a lot of people still rely on save percentage uh, for goaltenders. Um, and you look at that and it's like, okay, well, yeah, there are probably better uh, goaltending metrics out there uh, that someone who works in data uh, will try to use when they can, uh, but also be cognizant of the fact that we're already getting the average person to start looking away from wins and goals against average. It's all kind of that finding uh, finding a bridge uh, that makes it simple, accessible, um, but also informative to the average person. And uh, I think it's important that we remember that. We're still seeing uh, some resistance to moving in the analytics direction at the pro level. And I thought what you said about trying to get an edge uh, and why wouldn't you do anything you can to win games was was really interesting because that kind of juxtaposition with the mentality that some pro teams still have is very strange. Uh, like I, I think it was last year Pierre Dorian said pretty famously at one of his postseason press conferences that uh, – uh, that Cody Cece and Mark Borowiecki were some. Uh, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but he said they were uh, excellent defenders despite what the analytics say. Um, and I get that a GM has to say that about two guys that are that are on his roster. But why do you think that resistance is still happening uh, at the NHL level? Uh, again, I think it just kind of comes down to people who aren't prepared to accept that they don't have all the answers. I think it takes. It takes a lot to be able to say I don't know. A lot of the time, a lot of the time, that's the smartest answer you can give to a question. And for them, um, it, it, there's a feeling of certainty when it just comes down to their own opinion, because no one can really uh, question an, an opinion. Whereas when you're working in the currency of facts, it's either true or it's not. Um, when you leave it to interpretation, it gives them control over uh, decision-making. It gives them plausible deniability if they make a mistake. Um, and it, it's just it's a comfort zone, really. Uh, and I think that's what it comes down to more than anything is uh, that that idea that they get to they get to be in the driver's seat if they don't have something telling them otherwise. I think it's important to, to listen to uh, the uncertain side of yourself and ask more questions and be willing to defer if uh, there's evidence, uh, if there's evidence otherwise. And maybe that doesn't always apply to, to every example, like with the example of that quote, I actually do kind of see where, where Pierre was coming from because uh, those are two players that were very, very maligned by the, uh, by the analytics community. And I think there are certain contexts where you can look at them and understand where some of their metrics um, don't entirely describe what they are as players. Like I know one, uh, one battle I have on, uh, on Twitter that I never ever expected that I would have is being the, uh, I don't want to say pro Cody CC guy in Toronto, uh, but the, he's not that, bad um guy in toronto just because i don't think people take into context the roles that players are assigned to uh assigned to play whether it's usage or um certain assignments they have in their in their game their the instructions that they're they're given um i think there are times where yes that that definitely does get lost in the analytical debate 
But at the same time, it gives you a pretty good idea of who the good players are and who the not so good players are and who the guys who probably are a tier below um, are. It, it gives you those. It, it it doesn't give you the preciseness, but it gives you the error bar. Um, and uh, to 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 kind of scoff that off, I think would be, is doing yourself a disservice. It's funny what you said about CC because I've kind of been that guy for Nikita Zaitsev in Ottawa this year. Uh, in- then I, I think there was a, a player in him in what, uh, at one point, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if DJ Smith was using him in a way that was a little overly simplistic. But I think uh, I think with him, I won't go into too much detail because this is not really the question. But I, I, I think after he had his first concussion and. Uh, he had, he had like a run in Toronto where he had a concussion, the flu, and a foot injury in the span of like six months. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he's ever recovered from that. Uh, so I don't know if he's as bad as he was, as he looked this year because he looked pretty awful. Um, but uh, at the same time, it's kind of hard to, to weigh the balance of him. But uh, I'll defer to the actual question. Yeah. it, uh, it The analytics plays a role in the scouting that you do, obviously. Uh, and I think that's really interesting because when you're talking about young players, there's so many more things that you have to factor in than at the pro level, right? You have to factor in their age, their potential, and you know the player that they could be rather than the player that they are. So what are some of the ways that it's changed your perception of, of young players and, uh, and, how, and how you approach scouting them? I think for me... Um, what it's, what it illuminates is it, it makes me think about where, what's the best way of saying this? Actually, simpler way of saying it. I'm, it it has me more focused on hockey IQ. Um, it makes knowing the process of what creates a good play driver, for example, makes you look for players who make smart decisions. You start looking for things like gap control. You start looking for how they carry the puck out of the zone. Uh, you look for how they look for options. Uh, and you do a little bit of tracking on the, along the way. Like even when I'm scouting like minor midget or midget games, I'm, I'm always kind of keeping some notes um, that that are closer to the tracking variety, looking for zone entries, shots, so on and so forth. Not because I think that the end result of that output is going to give me a rank of the best players, uh, but it gives me a general idea of what that player's play style is, who kind of plays in the way that would mesh with... Um, with your team, how they can adapt uh, moving forward to the, to the game of today. Like if you're already playing that kind of low possession shutdown uh, kind of role when you're 15, 16 years old, it's kind of hard to project you uh, much further. But if you could, you kind of see that that a player is making uh, a lot of good decisions, even if it's not. Um, resulting in points, uh, it gives you something to think about with them and makes you wonder uh, how you can integrate them into a system, uh, how you can develop them uh, into a better player. Uh, I I just say it's more more than anything, I, it informs what I test variables you're looking for almost. You look for the players who uh, who are similar to what works. Uh, and, and I think that's huge in scouting. And I think you're seeing a lot more of the the younger scouting community 
uh, taking those concepts and be it through tracking or be it through just standard video watching or being at games, they start looking for the little things. And looking for the little things has always been a thing in scouting. That's kind of the whole point of the whole operation. Uh, but the what those things are, I think, changes as you understand uh, what works in hockey and what doesn't. So if, if anything, uh, how analytics apply there is not so much in crunching the individual players' numbers, but uh, in, in identifying traits that could help them succeed at the next level. Is this a shift that's beginning to happen at the pro level too? Like uh, now that this whole analytics movement has really taken hold within the hockey community, are we seeing players um, going higher in the draft than they maybe would have, say, you know, 15 years ago? Yeah, I think so. And probably, uh, pro- I'd actually probably say more so the other way around, where you're not seeing um, as many of like the big, t- big rough boy amongst men or men amongst boy um, type players uh, through the draft. As someone obviously who follows and covers Toronto, I think back to. 2008 when the when the Maple Leafs traded up to the fifth overall pick um, in a rebuild year, giving up multiple picks to do so to draft uh, Luke Shen, who, thank goodness, they were able to flip uh, into James Van Riemsdyk a few years later. Uh, but I couldn't see a Luke Shen type player getting drafted fifth overall in 2020. Um, no, no disrespect to Luke. I actually liked him a lot at the time. And I think that kind of... Um, makes that point about how my recognition of play styles has changed uh, through being invested in analytics. Uh, But you don't see those kind of guys flying up the draft anymore. Um, Obviously, Ottawa did much better in that round. Uh, That Eric guy they drafted ended up being being okay. Uh, Yeah, I think I remember him. Yeah. um, I I have two of his sense jerseys. I'm uh, I've... um, he he he's an unbelievable player uh but um yeah it's i think that's what it is more than anything like i think i i i think there's still some bias in the scouting process i like i i still think there's there's trouble with small guys getting opportunities if you look at alex to that was only four years ago where he was putting up 50 goal 100 point seasons in the ohl by all means should have been a slam dunk to be a high pick and he slipped into the uh into the second round. And this is while we were already aware of uh, where, where this was all kind of going. So it's a slow process. Uh, I think right now what we're seeing again is more the, the quote unquote grenade picks uh, going, going away. Uh, Identifying the home runs is obviously hard when you're talking about teenagers, Uh, but there's more, there, there's more avoidance. There's, there's more of an understanding of what's risky um and you're seeing teams kind of steer away from it i think that's the perfect segue into this next topic the nhl obviously making an effort to resume operations uh we'll talk about the broader kind of return to play in a little bit but it's been stated now that the draft lottery is taking place on june 26th what are your thoughts on this format because there was a lot of speculation going on before it was officially announced um, so I want to get your thoughts on it and how you think that it impacts the different teams that are going to be eligible for the lottery. Um, I'm kind of mixed on it. I didn't really like the idea of going back to the, um, 
to the traditional uh, draft format that was floated for a while. And no, it's not because uh, because Ottawa was guaranteed their two top fives. I actually <laughs> didn't. I actually didn't mind that. That would be a lot of fun. Uh, it just, it, but it just seemed like too much of a of a break to have with no uh, ability to plan for it. You can't really change uh, the system too much out out of the blue like that when teams. Um, project themselves based on uh, uh, on where they uh, on their positions uh, in the standings and being able to be in the lottery mix. I don't know how much I like the idea of this two lottery thing and uh, and and the fact that the play in teams could very well get bumped uh, straight in the straight up to the top. Um, I think for, but I think that's more an issue with the the scope of the format for the for the playoffs. Um, this is kind of a byproduct of that. It's not an individual issue because this still generally falls within the scope of how um, the draft lottery would normally be and how draft procedure would uh, usually be. But it does definitely seem weird that teams that uh, that are in the middle of the league both have an opportunity to take a run at the Stanley Cup, and if they 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 crash on arrival, they then have an opportunity to pick first overall. That part to me is a little bit silly, but again, that's that's a product of how they built the playoff format more so than it is something um, that's specific to the draft lottery. Yeah, I thought that part was asinine, and I still do. Um, obviously I'm biased being, being an Ottawa fan and covering Ottawa, but for these teams like Montreal and the Rangers to both get a shot at playing for the Stanley cup. And like you said, if they crash on arrival, they get a chance to pick first overall too. I, I don't understand that. I don't understand why these teams, you know, can, can have their cake and eat it too. Uh, meanwhile, you've got these teams like Ottawa and Detroit that are suffering, frankly, especially in Ottawa, what this poor fan base has had to go through for the last three odd years now. And now you have a chance to, I don't want to say throw them a bone because that sounds cheap, but now you tell them that, Hey, look, uh, thank you for your patience. We know you guys have suffered a lot and to reward you for that. Um, we're kind of slashing your lottery odds and giving better teams chances to leapfrog you. Uh, I don't like that aspect of it at all. Um, it sounds like you kind of agree, but I, I hate it. Yeah, it's it, 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 again, it's tricky. Like, you, if it's a Montreal or if it's the Rangers, uh, for example, like that's that's not so bad of an outcome just because those are teams that were kind of prepared uh, to be in a rebuilding uh, position. Maybe not so much Montreal, but the Rangers definitely didn't expect to be uh, in the mix. That's uh, that's full credit to Artemi Panarin for pretty much being the MVP of the league this year. Uh, k- dragging them, kicking and screaming to even into mediocrity is uh, is incredible. Uh, but at the same time, it's it, it is it's unfair to to give the the middle ground the biggest leverage. Uh, in this format and especially if it happens in a way where teams who were nowhere close to being involved in the lottery um end up getting it because like pittsburgh penguins were not far away from the from being close to the top of their conference they were six points back of second in the conference yeah. uh which i think would put them at third or fourth overall if they lose if they lose to montreal 
in the in this best of five, which is very well possible. Anything can happen in a best of five. Anything can happen in a best of seven, but in a best of five, you're even adding more uh, luck to the mix. I like it. It'd be so crazy if we see a scenario where it's like Montreal goes on a run to win the cup and Pittsburgh wins the draft lottery, or Chicago goes on a run and the Oilers win the draft lottery. Heaven forbid, um, it happens for them again. Uh, but you, but it's just, it, it it's it's just so needlessly complex. It's trying the whole format, be it from the lottery to the playoffs. It feels like they're trying to have an element of chaos somewhat, but also try to show a little bit of control. And in a way, by trying to do both, they get neither. Um, obviously, the big pull for them is that they want to get two really big markets. And this uh, this gets Montreal in right on the cusp, but this gets Chicago in right on the cusp. And that's great for TV ratings, social media, so on and so forth. Uh, but it creates, it creates a format that ne- neither serves to... Um, to uphold structure or to create a truly um, fun, chaotic format. I'd almost like, I would rather every team get a chance at the playoffs or the dra- and or the draft lottery than to kind of have this weird middle ground where we're kind of selectively uh, picking and choosing. Like uh, an example that I brought up a few days ago and Rasmus Dahlin brought up uh, in a Swedish newspaper, I think yesterday was um, if the NHL waited one more day to postpone. There's a very real chance that the Sabres are in the playoffs and the Habs aren't because Buffalo was due to face Montreal that night. And that would flip them in the standings if the Sabres were uh, to win that game. So I don't even know if this solves all the little micro uh, grievances because you're adding a couple of extra teams who are close to the bubble. But now you have another one that was one off of the bubble. It just, it, it seems like it's trying to do too much while accomplishing very little. I cannot believe you just brought to my mind the idea of not only Montreal winning the cup, but Pittsburgh picking first overall. That might, act, that might, that might actually possible. kill me. Don't tell me that, man. <laughs> like, I can't take it. <laughs> You're talking to an Ottawa fan. You know what I've been through the last three years. Like, I, I cannot do that. I don't know. Uh, do you think Alf will be a better uh, winger for Crosby or Malkin? <laughs> oh. In any case, uh, I'm glad you brought uh, Lafreniere up because... One thing that I haven't seen a lot of people talk about is the way that this coronavirus stoppage is going to impact the prospects that are up to be drafted this year. Because we don't know when the season, when next season is going to start. We don't even know if we're going to get through these playoffs. So what are your thoughts on that side of things? Uh, how do you think it's going to impact these kids that are that are coming into the draft this year? It's it's super tricky, and that's one of the reasons why when they were talking about uh, the league doing the lottery and the draft before the playoffs, I was like, you know what? That's not as bad of an idea as people think it is. Uh, because at the end of the day, the NHL is the only one of these leagues that's coming back. We've confirmed this now, but we've known this for a long time. They're, with everybody else, uh, they rely on gate revenue to survive and kind of in-person 
purchases at the arena and concessions and stuff like that. All things that they would not uh, be able to get in a closed-door environment. They're not making anything off of TV deals or uh, maybe a little bit on streaming. But as far as I understand, even like the junior team specifically don't have a great deal with uh, with their streamer. And they're switching over to the same format as the American League next year, I believe. Um, so there's just there's not... Um, there's not anything, uh, there was never anything for them to, to, to come back. The NHL is only coming back because they have um, gateways to money through their, through their TV deals and through social media and just various advertising. Uh, so they're going to operate on a completely different schedule for the next year. Um, they're going to start lo- looking at, at starting at different times and the National Hockey League will start their 2021 season. So what kind of happens if the if these prospects does a Lafreniere or Byfield um, start playing uh, in in junior for a couple of months and then get pulled back uh, by their by their team? How do you deal with those players who um, who have those those rights issues? How does the nine game thing uh, come into effect uh, next season? How do they do training camps? Do you are you taking them away from? their junior teams mid-season just to do an NHL training camp or rookie camp um, and then sending them back. It's going to be chaos in that regard. I was That's why I was happy with the idea of just getting it out of the way for them so that way they can be focused, the teams can give them uh, their training plans for the summer, um, kind of give them an outline of where uh, where they see them instead of having to go back to their junior leagues, their European leagues, their colleges, whatever, uh, without a plan, and then suddenly have the entire the 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 entire pathway for them uh, changed. Especially at this pivotal time in their lives, we're talking about players in their in their not quite yet in their athletic primes and who are still kind of figuring themselves out as people. Um, so it's, it's going to be really tough on them and it's going to be very interesting to see how teams mitigate that and how they're able to kind of help these players, uh, balance it all once, once the draft comes. It's a, it's a bit of a shame that, um, that, that they didn't go with the idea of just doing the draft, uh, on schedule so that they could, um, so, so they could take care of themselves and develop them and make sure that they're up to speed in the way that they should. And that's if those junior leagues are running at all, right? Like, we don't know if the CHL is going to be able to continue operations, at least for this year. Um, Like you said, these are leagues that rely so much on gate revenue rather than TV deals and stuff. So it just adds an entirely different wrinkle to it. And as far as the actual return to play goes and the league's plan to kind of post up in these hub cities and do lots of testing and essentially um, shut off their players from the outside world for a period of a few months. What do you think about the plan itself? Uh, and do you think they can do it safely? Um, doing it safely, I think is possible, but I still have a lot of questions about the impact it has um to the to whatever the communities they choose to go to, which hub cities they choose to go to, um, obviously with all the unrest right now, I think that's kind of on the back burner at the at the moment. Uh, of but, course, yeah. Um, but with uh, with all that, um, all, all the infrastructure in place, yeah, I think they can they can have players in these quote unquote bubbles 
Um, they can have consistent testing and have everyone kind of stay on uh, specific sites. I think that part is is feasible. It's doable. The issue is to do that right is going to take a lot of testing. It's going to take a lot of resources, and it's got to be something that's uh, continuous. And that could ham- that 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 could be difficult for um, a city that needs to fight. The, um, the virus for its citizens in a lot of different ways. Um, if they're if they're taking up a lot of tests, then those are tests that the public doesn't have. Not just that, if they're buying on uh, mass and they're paying good money for them, that's going to drive up the cost for for whatever city uh, they go to to get them for for the public or for for people to get them privately themselves. Um, there's a lot of different factors that kind of go into place there. Now, as for the actual format itself, as I mentioned before, I'm not um, I'm not a fan of doing the 24 team thing. It it rewards too many teams that were kind of close but weren't really there. Um, the playing around idea I think brings too much luck into the mix. Uh, we already kind of know that the playoffs can be a bit of a weighted coin toss, uh, even on the best of days. Um, but it's, it's super tricky to, to think that this is giving you a control of who the best team is when it's already, um, so hard to do so. And I think there were, there are other ways that they could have gone through with this, um, to either completely open it up and, and, and um, have a lot of fun with it or to kind of keep the format traditional. Like one one quote unquote plan that I had uh, brought up before um, before they, the league announced theirs was the idea of taking all the teams that are within striking distance of a playoff spot and just getting them all to 74 games. Um, that's going to give you about 50 games of... Uh, uh, of scheduled end of season play, which is about as much as the play-ins and round robins would have given you anyway. But you can get a top, you can get your top sixteen teams. You know who those teams are using the standings that you already have, and you kind of have um, you the, the you know who's earned it and who hasn't, uh, and you can keep the structure of the rest of the playoffs. Um, there were a lot of other plans out there that were very interesting i like the idea that uh carolina had it's very similar to one that i had had previously where you give the teams that are in the higher seeds a win uh spotted to them uh or maybe even two wins depending on how much of a difference there is in the in the point totals like again that pittsburgh montreal series pittsburgh has 69 games played 86 points Montreal has 71 games played and 71 points. It's a 15-point difference with the team that's behind having two games in hand. They're like that's not a realistic series, uh, especially when you consider that Pittsburgh isn't even that high of a seed. They're still 14 be- points behind um, the first place seed in in Boston, who might not even get to be the one seed due to this round robin. What's the what was the point of them being a 70-point team? Uh, being the president's trophy team over 70 games. Um, if now that might not mean much for home ice beyond the second or third round, uh, if they were to go, go that far, there's just so many little things that seem to have been glossed over in terms of what was really the point of the regular season. If you're, 
if you're throwing it away. And it's not like there wasn't enough games to to work with, even if they just kind of wanted to cut it here and just use points percentage for the top 16 teams. Uh, in 1995, they played 48 games, and that was enough to, to create a playoff bracket. In 2013, they played 48 games, and that was enough to create a playoff bracket. In the original six era, it was a 70-game season. That's about where everybody is right now, and they had their brackets just fine. Um, it, it just seems like they there there was too much um, there there was too much of an attempt to balance structure and uh, and chaos, and instead, again, they kind of got neither. I was actually going to ask you about that because if I'm the Boston Bruins, I am pissed beyond belief at this entire format. And Cam Neely made that pretty clear on a call to the press the other day. And he said the exact same things you did. He said, what was the point of the regular season? What was the point of us, you know, and Boston having a huge spread on pretty much the rest of the league. And when you factor in that teams like Vegas, who was down Mark Stone, are going to get healthy. Um, it's going to be, it's almost, it's like you said, it's almost as if their regular season is is meaningless now. But what do you say to people that think this makes it more wide open now? Because there's there's so many variables to it uh, with teams getting healthy, with who's going to be fresh, who's not going to be fresh, who who wasn't able to, you know, they're obviously probably guys who weren't able to work out the way they wanted to work out over this whole thing. What do you say to the people that like how kind of wide open this makes it uh maybe even in spite of the fact that it kind of renders the regular season moot i mean i don't blame them uh at the end of the day this is an entertainment product and it's going to be very entertaining uh for, for us talking about merit we're looking at it from an analyst perspective if you're just a fan um seeing this you're like oh yeah absolutely i get to see more teams uh battle it out and that might include my team uh at the same time i feel like if you that's what you wanted the just the total chaos and parody of it all then it shouldn't have just been 24 teams why not have the entire league involved that was one of my original ideas too is like yeah if you're gonna if you don't feel that the um if you feel that the Rangers and the Panthers and those kind of teams that are on the cusp get, deserve a shot to uh, to uh, to do something because they were so close, then why not just let everybody in? Like, yeah, like, probably it feels dumb to say uh, Detroit will be a play, the Red Wings will be a playoff team, um, but. It's it feels a little bit better than saying oh well Montreal is is but Buffalo isn't even though we were we could have been hours away from that flipping um, and then New Jersey's not particularly far away from Buffalo and even even the Senators who were second last at the end of it they're not that far back from where they cut the line off um, they are in in thirtieth place there's nine points back of uh, of having made it under this expanded format. Uh, and this expanded format is allowing a team that is 10 points back of the original format to be in. So if what you want is chaos, then we should have just opened it up completely. Um, at least that's the way I see it. I think if uh, I think if you want to promote this as as a wide open uh, parity driven uh, playoff, which it is, there's going to be almost no way to predict um who's going to be the better team this year not like there really is any year but especially not now if it's going to be like that why not just open the entire thing and make it this big um well i guess not big but it, it, this extravaganza of sort this sorts this tv event 
that just says, okay, well, if we can't have the standard Stanley Cup playoffs, let's just try something completely um, out uh, out of the blue and completely different instead of this whole, okay, well, it's kind of the same, but it's not, and you're just going to have to trust us on this. And I know it's weird, but this is how we get the teams we want in. It 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 just doesn't work for me. Do you think that the playoffs get expanded to 24 teams if we're not talking about Montreal, the Rangers, and Chicago being in? No, no, I don't think so at all. Um, Those are huge markets uh, that they know will be very, very engaged, uh, even though they were markets that were were not expecting to be here. you go to a Rangers fan, they saw themselves as a rebuilding team. You go to a Habs fan, they were probably a bit disappointed with how the season started, but by the end of it, they knew that they were a team that needed uh, this year. Blackhawk fans know that they're in a transitional phase. But if you ask them, hey, do you want some playoff hockey anyway? They're not going to say no. Why would you say no? Uh, your team has a chance at winning the Stanley Cup, and you get to see them on the ice again after everything that's gone on. And when you're talking about three of the biggest franchises in the sport, um, that's obviously enticing uh, to the league. Even just Montreal and Chicago, uh, like you could have probably done a 22-team format uh, if you wanted to do this kind of balance, and that would have on paper looked a lot better just because everyone would have been only a couple of points out of the picture if you're clipping out uh, those two. Uh, but money talks and audiences talk and the league is going to want to recover um, some losses and some lost uh, eyeballs uh, in this playoff run because really we don't even know if what what comes after this is done. Maybe they do this closed door environment and the pandemic hasn't lessened enough uh, for them to think that it makes sense to do 82 uh, games uh, behind closed doors and they just don't bother with next year. Um, So for them, it's very much a matter of getting whatever they can right now and then dealing with the rest later. And when that involves being able to add two high pedigree teams, to the mix, that's why they're doing it. And that's their choice. Uh, but I think it's important to realize that distinction of that's why those teams are in. Before we get to questions here, Jeff, I definitely want to get your thoughts on the Toronto-Columbus series because I look at it um, and, you know, my feelings on the Leafs are known. They've always been known. But from a completely, you know, purely hockey standpoint I look at that and I think Toronto is the better team but by the same token I think Columbus might be one of the worst possible matchups for them just because of the style of play the stingy defense um, goaltending that could get hot at any moment what are your thoughts on it do you think it's gonna be do you think that the least firepower is just going to let them kind of rule Columbus or do you see the Blue Jackets maybe causing the Leafs some problems? I think it's going to be a very good competitive series and it would be um, irresponsible to think that there's that, that, that there's one team that's got a clear edge here. Toronto obviously has a lot of very, very good firepower uh, in front of them and players who are having spectacular seasons up front. Uh, they also had issues with goaltending towards the end of uh, t- towards the pause and when they come back, they're going to have 
um, a Cole Frederick Anderson, which for them in previous years has not been a good thing uh, at the start of the season. He's historically a slow starter, so it's going to be very interesting to see if he can uh, if he can get himself to game speed uh, after. Uh, after all of this, especially when he wasn't 100% up to game speed when the game, the season was was going. And that's a huge thing in the playoffs. That's a massive thing is goaltending. We all know that a hot goaltender can push a team through uh, through, through anything uh, when, once it becomes a matter of a best of five or a best of seven series. Uh, and then you flip over to Columbus where you have uh Elvis uh, Merzlikens and Jonas Corpusalo who have shown at times that they can flare up uh it's I'm sure Columbus is very happy right now looking at their uh 1.9 million dollar goaltending tandem that's even with their raises coming up is still going to be significantly cheaper than the guy who walked away in Sergei Bobrovsky uh and when you have two guys who can, can who who can catch fire that's a, that's a big thing for you and when you look at the amount of firepower that both teams uh will be getting back they're all going to, they're both going to be almost entirely healthy uh from my understanding the maple leafs will get back everybody except for andreas Janssen, uh which means they get back um Ilya Mikheyev, they get back Jake Muzzin um they were just getting back uh, Morgan Riley and Cody CC uh, right as the pause happened. And then on Columbus's end, they get back uh, Seth Jones, one of the best defensemen in the in the National Hockey League. They get back guys like Brandon Dubinsky. I believe the only player that they're looking at not getting back is Josh Anderson. So each team loses um, a strong middle six forward, but they are pretty much at full firepower. Um, and we know that Columbus is a team that's capable of rattling some cages. Toronto is very similarly built to Tampa Bay, and we all know what Columbus did to Tampa Bay last year in that crazy uh, first-round sweep. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think it's uh, two very talented teams um, and two uh, solid coaching staffs uh, behind them. I'm not sure if I would have said that in uh, in November, uh, but I feel a little bit more confident in saying that now. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it, and I think uh, this Leaf team is looking forward to the opportunity because there's a lot of questions about how far they can go with this group. Um, and uh, there, there's too much, there's too much talent there for it to not, uh, for, for them to stay in that ra- that round one holding spot uh, for too long. I guess this would be a round zero, but um, I, I, I don't know. It's going it, to, it'll be a lot of fun. Um, and it's, not the matchup that I think either team was expecting to have, but I think both teams are going to be eager to have it. If I had to put you on the spot right now and ask you to pick one team that stands the best chance of walking away with the Stanley Cup at the end of all this, who is it? Um, it's tough. Uh, probably still one of the the, the, the top teams. We're pro- probably looking at a Boston just because they have – a lot of high-end talent, and Tuka Rask is having an unbelievable season. Um, they have uh, a very quick, energetic team. They built a lot on speed, and that's a shift that a lot of people actually don't seem to recognize. 
in the hockey community is that they're no longer the big tough push you around Bruins, but they're very uh, they're a very mobile group, so they will have rested legs going into a run like this. Um, and also, you're you're generally in good shape picking the President's Trophy team. There's that whole thing about the curse, and obviously, uh, Tampa Bay did. Uh, did that thought no favors last year, but there's still that's still the most likely seed to win in any given year because they're they were the team that was consistently the best. They have the most weight on their coin. I think it's pretty impossible to pick um, a favorite, especially in a five round format where there's a lot of opportunity for luck to uh, get in the way of talent. But they're, they're they're a very very good team and they have the most important pieces to win in the playoffs, which is strong goaltending and a couple high-end players who can catch fire as well. So they would probably be my pick at the moment. I definitely think that's a safe pick, and if I was a betting man, I would put my money on the Bruins. But one thing, one team I think people are still sleeping on is the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, getting Mark Stone back healthy again, um, getting yeah, just generally getting your team healthy again, but then you add in a goaltending tandem of Mark Andre Fleury and Robin Leonard. I don't think it's a stretch to say that's probably the best goaltending tandem in the league right now. So um, if those guys are healthy and if they're fresh and rested, um, rather than like you mentioned about Freddie Anderson starting off cold, I think Vegas stands a really good chance of walking away with this thing too. Yeah, I can agree with that. And they're built very similarly to Boston. And it actually kind of goes back to one of the points you were making earlier on when we were talking about analytics and how uh, teams are kind of using it to look for traits and play styles. I think that's one of the things we kind of missed with uh, Vegas when they built their team was they had um, a vision of how they wanted to play and it was a very modern, high-paced style of game uh, that still had some physicality to it. Uh, and they picked and they acquired based around that. Um, that the, it wasn't a matter of necessarily getting all the best um, the best players available to them at the time through the expansion draft. And I think there were still opportunities where they could have um, made better picks. But generally speaking, they had a vision for how they wanted to build the team. And it's one that kind of correlates with uh, how teams win in, in this day and age in Boston, it's the same way. They have they know that that kind of pace and energy um, helps you down the stretch. Uh, and that's something they built around almost to a fault. Like there are a couple of guys in the Bruins system who you're like, oh, that guy has wheels, but I don't know what else he has. Um, but that, that you're seeing uh, more and more teams that are buying into um, certain styles of play uh, that, 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 influence your odds a little bit and can turn uh okay players into good players and good players into great players and vegas definitely has that element and i can 100 percent see them being in that stanley cup conversation at the end of the season it's a they've done such an unbelievable job with building up that program uh hats off to them um there it, it'll be It'll, I'd be really interested to see where that goes. And like you said, getting Mark Stone back, like he's a, he's a super high-end player, probably one of the best two-way uh, forwards in the entire league. Um, and we've seen before that he can influence a playoff series. And as you mentioned, too, the goaltending, uh, they would probably give Fleury the benefit of the doubt just because of everything he's done for the franchise so far. But Robin Leonard is probably the best fallback anybody's got in the league. He's... Uh, had and he's had an incredible last couple of seasons 
so they have ways to to add weight to that coin. So the, I would not disagree with you that they have a good opportunity uh, come playoff time. Jeff, thank you for coming on. This has been awesome. Let's get to some questions from the listeners. I know there's there's one you're eager to answer. So let's let, so. let's get all the weird ones. I'm in for it. Let's do it. Let's let's get that one out of the way first. So that one comes in from Bossy asking if you regret buying a Snapchat filter for. <laughs> first up, shout out Bossy. Uh, shout out a lot of the people on Senators Twitter because I know uh, I definitely ruffled some feathers in in 2017 when that team was looking analytically not so great and there were a lot of questions about how sustainable that was uh, you were and, wrong yeah well but that's the, but that's the thing in the moment though uh it feels different and mm. i un, i understand that like especially for a franchise that has kind of always been the the black sheep of the canadian uh teams it's always kind of been the underdog to have that kind of season where everyone's just so excited to see them go on this against all odds run with a lot of immensely likable players um and players who had unbelievable seasons uh i've always said that i would have given eric carlson the con smythe even though the team didn't even make it to the finals just because of how well he played um I, I so there were a lot of people who I almost kind of burned bridges with who kind of came back around once they were like, okay, well, he's not just here to shit on the senators. He the the senators happen to be the example, but he he shares all his shit equally. And Bosti was one of them. Um, <laughs> so so the Snapchat filter thing also kind of pertains to that season because that was the uh, the whole Leafs are actually good year uh, where. Um, the Leafs went from a 30th last place team uh, to squeaking into the playoffs, their first 82 game playoff clinch in 13 years. And at the start of the year, that was something I thought they were capable of. I pegged them as uh, third in the Atlantic division. They finished third in the Atlantic division. Uh, we had a whole, we had hashtags, we had merchandise um, and one of my things, because I was basically taking a victory lap on all the shit that I got from people in Toronto who were, <laughs> and that was the best part is I was getting more shit from Leaf fans for saying the team was good than Senators fans for saying the team was bad. Uh, that doesn't that surprise year. me at all. I was, it's very, it, it's immensely complicated. We could do a whole episode on the whole actually good thing. But one of my victory lap things was, okay, well, let's get a Snapchat filter for Maple Leaf Square uh, for the for for the game days of the playoffs, so I kind of looked at the schedule and what days they could have been. Did it ahead of time. Did the actually good logo and threw it in on uh, on Maple Leaf Square for I think two or three days. And because I did it before the league actually announced the dates, it was a lot cheaper than you would think it would be. Uh, I think I paid eighty dollars for the entire thing, which actually now come to think of it was four days. And about 20 bucks a day whereas if i had waited like a week i think it would have been something like 16 17 thousand dollars um because that's what the companies were paying to be there in the playoffs so you'd see like the molson canadian stuff or the, the official leaf tags and all of a sudden there's this like this actually good logo um on there so no i absolutely don't re uh, regret using that filter. <laughs> it was awesome it was such a like, it, it was it was a fuck you to snapchat it was a fuck you to people who were upset uh over the course of the year and the most ridiculous part of it is i think just rain who's a uh a canadian youtuber yeah uh, yeah he's he's awesome uh he stumbled on it and he used it and i don't think he even knew what it was referring to but it gave the filter some use so when i logged in after it was all done and it's like how many impressions did this get it had like seven or eight hundred thousand and i'm like that's not bad for eighty dollars companies 
if I told a company I could get Just Rain to use their my, my Snapchat filter, they would have paid me a lot more than that. Because they pay him a lot more than that. So I, I think all the little things that came out of it, it was kind of a celebration of the people who did enjoy the, the Leafs' ascent to being a competitive team again. I think that was a lot of fun. That was a great way to to end that whole kind of saga. Bernard Dockerbro wants to know which NHL when oh Jesus which NHL teams are poised to do something incredibly stupid in the offseason. I just know Buffalo is going to do something and I can't wait to see what it is. Before you get to that one, I just want to say my heart goes out to you Buffalo Sabres fans. Uh we don't have the best history between Ottawa and Buffalo, but oh my god, I, there's not many teams as an Ottawa fan that I feel sorry for, but organizationally the Buffalo Sabres my heart goes out to y'all. Yeah, they've been they've been a mess in so many different ways, be it how they've constructed the roster to how they've had fan relations over the past uh, season or so, or the fact that they were doing everything they could to not pay arena staff during the the, the start of the COVID outbreak. It's just it, it's so disappointing because I know they had so much optimism for uh, this ownership group when they came in because they were willing to spend, but just. They threw money at a problem, it didn't work, and now there's this weird ambivalence and uncaring and lack of empathy for this fan base and no attention to detail. And it it sucks. It's like it's almost the Ottawa problem except at a higher budget. Definitely. Uh, uh, and even then, that budget isn't entirely spent correctly. So, yeah, they're definitely one of those teams where I could see them doing something silly. Um, they who who would I put up there? Vancouver's one that I'm. I think I'd be uh, curious about too, which I hate to say because I would like them to succeed. But you see um, all the talk over the past couple of weeks of uh, conflicts with uh, internal management, and the uh, the release of Judd Brackett, who is their top uh, who is their top amateur scout, um, who's very influential in why they've uh, been able to kind of still rebuild, even though management is in denial of a rebuild. Um, this team has essentially lucked into um, its rebirth um, without uh, hitting on uh, Elias Peterson and Quinn Hughes. Um, I don't think Jim Benning still has a job, and I, to be honest, still don't know why he has a job with the way that things have kind of gone. And I don't know what he's going to do next and what ownership is going to approve of them to do next. And we're going to have to see if they... Um, See see how they address this offseason. This is going to be very, very make or break for them. So I think Vancouver would probably be the team that I would identify there as the one that could be just like, what are you doing? Why, are, why do you think this is a good idea for building a hockey team? Steve wants to know if you own multiple Kuhlman jerseys. I do own multiple Nikolai Kulikin jerseys. There are a lot of players that I own multiple jerseys of. I'm a very avid uh, jersey collector. It's something that I got into uh, in high school, basically uh, going back to the whole origin story of creating blogs or whatever. Um, I would sell advertising on my smaller little websites and in, in like SEO communities or whatever. And at the time, I didn't even have a bank account, so people would just pay me through PayPal. And when you're when you're a kid without a lot of hobby and you just really care about hockey, your best way of uh, laundering money, uh, so to speak, is to <laughs> buy uh, cheap hockey jerseys on eBay. So a collection kind of started and then a bit of uh, a bit of sniping and flipping and all that um, came to fruition. And it's just kind of it, it's kind of grown. That's why um, 
I think there's a question here that um, points it out. I have like even the Sens, like I think I have six Sens jerseys. Um, I have a sweater from every team in the league. So back to Nikolai Kuhlman. Uh Yeah, I, I liked Cooley when he was here at the Leafs. I love that line with him, um, Mikhail Grabowski, and obviously formerly former Sen Clark MacArthur. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I've actually owned multiple of all three of those guys' sweaters at some point. I've sold my extra MacArthur and I sold my extra Grabowski, uh, but I have through I have the line kind of hanging behind me at all times. And recently, I grabbed another Kuhlman off eBay for like forty bucks, just because it's a bigger size that I can use when I'm going to go play pickup hockey. Um, so uh, do I own multiple Nick Kuhlman jerseys? Yes. Why? Uh, I don't know, but. Uh, <laughs> But um, he's not he's not the only one. I definitely have a jersey collecting problem. Thank God that I'm able to find good deals on them and pretty much break even by selling the ones I don't want. Yeah, the 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 jersey question you were referring to was from Ross asking if you'd ever own a Brady Kachuk jersey to match all your other Sens ones. Yes. Um. So to to go through which Sens jerseys I have first off. So we got Carlson. I own an Alex Dig jersey for whatever reason. Uh, wow. Heatley, Spezza. Uh, I have an Alfredson All Star Game sweater from the from the year that they were in Ottawa that I got for like thirteen bucks. That was an awesome find. Wow. Uh, yeah. No, it was great. Um, so who? I, I think I think I'm missing people too. I think I got a I got a couple of blanks as well. Ottawa is an easy team to pick up. Good deals on. I've noticed. Yeah, uh, it is. <laughs> Probably for pissed off of ownership and rightfully so. Um, would I get a Brady Kachuk jersey uh, if it was on sale? I would say that, and it's not. That's not even like a. I don't like Brady Kachuk. I have a very weird thing when it comes to sports sweaters in general, where I prefer double digits to single digits, just because I think it fills out the sweater better. Right. Um, so this would be a lot. I would say yes, 100. percent If he wore double digits, like I would buy Matthew's jersey, uh, Matthew Kachuk's jersey from uh, Calgary in a heartbeat. Or if Brady was like, okay, I'm wearing 17 now, I would have that. Uh, I would have no issue with that. I think he's a fantastic player. He's exceeded expectations for me i think uh, i think the senators do deserve credit for uh for believing in him as being worth uh keeping that draft pick uh that went a lot better for them than i kind of imagined it was going to uh so so yeah if i mean i i don't know if i would he's not one of my absolute favorite players and i don't know if i like the number seven for him so i'm not 100 sure if i would buy one uh at full price but if i saw it on a rack yeah i i have no issue with that Eric Carlson, Centennial, Colin White, Centennial, Mike Fisher, Red 3D, Daniel Alfredson, Red 3D, and I think that's, and then I have two blanks. I have a black 2D and a white 2D. Those are my, that's my sense collection, and I've got a Carlson, I've got a white Carlson Sharks, and my, uh, we've talked about this on Twitter, but my piece de resistance in my whole collection is a 2017 Mike Fisher Stanley Cup Finals jersey with the Predators the gold one with the captain's crest and the Stanley Cup final crest I got that one for a hundred bucks on eBay that that was a great find that's incredible Uh, oh I was so happy (laughs) my uh my crown jewel is a very weird one it's a Jeremy Williams game worn uh, Toronto Marlies jersey and that seems like a really weird crown jewel except for the fact that they spelled his name wrong on the nameplate um, it's spelled Williams. So just to kind of find that in a team clear out sale uh, for 50 bucks was hilarious. When I told when I told someone who worked for the team that I picked it up, they were like, that was not supposed to go out. Um, so that, that that one's, I think, the favorite that I got. 
That's amazing. We've got a couple. We got a couple left here. Uh, Le'Veon Blue uh, wants to know who wins the Calder this year. The Calder Trophy. Yeah. Oh, I guess yeah. The American League is not happening. Um, I would give it to Quinn Hughes. I think Ooh. he's. I think he's an unbelievable player, and he's pretty much the only reason the the Vancouver Blue Line is capable. I know there's a big debate between him and Caleb McCarr, and both of them are fantastic. And I don't think there's really a wrong answer there. Um, those two are a, a glimpse of what's to come for uh, mobile defensemen in the in, in this age of hockey. Um, and whoever wins it, I'm more than happy with. But for me, just the way that uh, that Quinn has been able to make a pretty bad Vancouver blue line uh, look capable. Like I was saying before, with just the idea of the Canucks basically being held together by a couple of weird hits on draft picks, um, just happening to to drag that roster through. Um, perfect time to fire your top scout, clearly. Um uh, I, I, to, to me, it's Hughes, and I'm okay if another answer, but it's hard to argue if a guy who's been this productive in his first NHL season, he's driving play, um, he just completely changes the complexion of the uh, of the Canucks when he's on the ice. Uh, it's uh, I have to go with him. I think I'm in the Kale McCarr camp. That was my uh, that was the best pick of my fantasy draft this year. I looked like a genius for that one. Last question here, uh, and it's one you'll probably like. What would the Leafs do if the salary cap doesn't increase? And if you had to move one of these three guys to clear up contract space, is it Austin Matthews, is it Mitch Marner, or is it William Nylander? Uh, what will they do if the cap doesn't go up? I don't think that's a big uh, issue for them. I think the Leafs' uh, cap situation is a little... I don't want to say over discussed. Well, I guess anything Leafs is over discussed, uh, so it is over discussed. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it's not what it's it's not really what it's made out to be. When you're you're only in a cap crunch if you have bad contracts is really right. what it comes to. And you look at what Toronto has going into uh, this off season. Their two big LTIR guys, Nathan Horton and David Clarkson, are both coming off the books. And I really, really love that David Clarkson is going to retire a Leaf. That's, it's great that that went full circle. Um, they, the, the worst contract in NHL history had to come home, especially because that guy genuinely loved being a Leaf. I'll never fault him for his bit. Um, Cody Cece comes off the books. If they bring him back, there's no way in hell he's getting $4.5 million. We all know this. Um, again, I he, I'm very much in the camp that he He's not the worst defenseman alive, but he's not a four and a half million dollar defenseman either. Uh, so that's that's a substantial uh, amount of money coming off. Uh, and then once you do that and you start looking at, OK, well, who's the worst contract on on the Leafs? Like they overpay their their superstars a bit. Sure. Uh, but after that, there's there's not really a grenade there. There are guys who are pretty easily movable under them. If if. if they need to move Andreas Janssen soon when he if the second he shows he's healthy, he's movable. If they need to move Kasperi Kapanen, they can move him in an hour. Alex Kerfoot, I think there's enough there that they can still probably not get a ton for him just because he had a rough year. But he's got that reputation to him and the fact that he can play both center and the wing, I think he's movable. So I think for them it would be those kind of guys that they would look um along the fringes if they had no choice. Uh 
but I also think they're pretty confident in their in the depth that they have and their ability to find uh, low cost fits uh, to kind of weather uh, the storm well. Uh, while, while the cap recovers. Now, if they had to move one of the three guys, I've said this a few times, and this is something that gets me uh, a lot of heat in Toronto pretty much every time I talk on this topic. Uh, Mitch Marner would be the guy I would move. That I think is Mitch, brave. <laughs> I think Mitch Marner is an incredible player who has the, the opportunity to be one of the best wingers the Leafs have ever had. Uh, the only guy who I think he might ha- not have a shot at catching is Charlie Conacher, and he played 80 years ago. So no one, no, so he'll yeah. be the best one remembers if he if he chooses to go through it. But at the same time, uh, that's a lot of money to pay a player of his caliber. He's he's a star. He might be a superstar. He's not like a transcendent. Uh, a transcendent star, and the the Leafs should have been able to use more leverage in their their negotiations with him. I think they overpaid him by probably about a million and a half to two million dollars. Um, which, at the end of the day, I'd rather overpay Mitch Marner that much than overpay Cody Cece or Nikita Zaitsev or Milan Lucic, those type of players. Uh, at the at the end of the day, I think most superstars in the NHL in general are underpaid. So if you're biting the bullet and you're paying a guy $11 million, uh, but if the league was uh, spread properly, he might be, um, he might be a $12 million player, but because it's not, he's a $9 million player. It's not really hurting you to have that on your roster right now, but he's a guy who has a big reputation around the league as an impact player. And people who think that he exceeds his current value, which he doesn't, if the right price was there, I think he is a guy that you can move. I don't think he's a guy you look to move. I'm not here to trade Mitch Marner. But if someone came and offered me some, something and said, okay, let's let, let's talk. I'm willing to give significant assets uh, and maybe help you out with your, with your cap flexibility, I would move on uh, from him before anybody else. Cause William Nylander's deal, as we know, is looking like the best out of the core guys. Um, and even that at the time was a slight overpayment, but that wasn't even as far off. I'm a big believer that, um, that overpayment is more about what happens at the time of the signing, not what the player becomes afterwards. Cause you're competing against the market and historical precedent. And in his case, he was right around uh, fair value, whereas Marner was a little bit above it. And then Matthews, uh, you wish they got better term on him, but you, that's not a guy you move. Uh, he, out of the gate, is one of the best even-strength goal scorers that the league has. I, I know this sounds like hyperbole, and every Senators fan is going to roll their eyes as I say this, but he's one of the best even-strength scorers goal scorers out of the gate that we've seen in NHL history. He's up there with the Lemuse, the Gretzkys, the Lindrosses, the Crosbys, uh, the Ovechkins. Like, it, he's a generational goal scorer. There are a few guys I've ever seen who just have the ability to put the puck in the net without needing a power play uh, to do so like he does. Um, certain elements of his game, I think, kind of get overhyped. And when people talk about his... Uh, his talents, I think they try to sound a little too poetic about it, but at the end of the day, the puck's got to go in the net and he does it better than anybody else, so you don't want to move him. Uh, so to me, Marner is the guy of the three. Ideally, you do everything you can to avoid trading uh, any of those three or John Tavares or any of your star guys. You work around 
um, your budget in the middle ground and on the fringes before you seriously look at stars unless they are unhappy with the situation. Well, listen, uh, you are right about Ottawa fans probably disagreeing with you, but it's like you said near the beginning of the show, um, we're, we're hockey fans before we're fans of a specific team, so... I would honestly have to 100% agree with everything you said about Austin Matthews. I think you hit the nail on the head about his ability, and I think you nailed it that maybe some of it is overhyped. But he is a tremendous player that is surely going to terrorize my team as long he's in, as long as he's in Toronto. Jeff Fayette, man, it has been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for joining Internal Budget today. Oh, it was a pleasure. I'm happy to come on anytime you're looking for someone to to chat some hockey with, even if it's from the the rival side. (laughs) Anytime you want to come back on and argue about the Sens and the Leafs, especially as both teams get better, I'm happy to do it. Why don't you tell the people one more time where they can find you at? You can find me on Twitter at my my full name, Jeff Fayette, V-E-I-L-L-E-T-T-E, or you can find my work at at faceoffcircle.ca. Yeah, not the face-off circle, but face-off circle, right? <laughs> I make that mistake too. No worries. <laughs> Folks, thank you for listening. Uh, make sure you follow Jeff and check out his writing. He is one of the best hockey resources out there. Uh, and like I said, thanks for listening. Make sure you download the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, rate it five stars, and share it with your friends. That is going to do it for this week's episode. We will catch you next week for episode 21. Take care, y'all.